Hello and welcome to today's seminar on Swaraj, Dada Bhai Noroji and the birth of Indian nationalism. I am Sanjay Kumar, the India Country Director of the Lakshmital and Family South Asia Institute at Harvard University. The mission of the institute is to engage through interdisciplinary research to advance and deepen the understanding of critical issues relevant to South Asia and its relationship with the world. As part of this engagement, the Mittal Institute hosts a multitude of events covering topics in the arts, humanities, sciences, education, business, and more. We are so glad you joined us today. Without further ado, I would like to introduce the moderator of today's session, Professor Swen Beckett. Professor Beckett researches and teaches the history of the United States in the 19th century, with a particular emphasis on the history of capitalism. He is co-chair of the Program on Study of Capitalism at Harvard University and co-chair of the Witherhead Initiative on Global History. Our speaker for today is Dinyar Patel, the assistant professor in the Department of History at the SPJAN Institute of Management and Research. He teaches courses on modern South Asia, the Indian nationalist movement, and the British Empire. In 2015, he received his PhD in history from Harvard University. His biography of Dada Bhai Noroji, Noroji pioneer of Indian nationalism, was published by Harvard University Press in May 2020. He has received two Fulbright fellowships and a fellowship from the National Endowment for the Humanities for his research. Thank you for being with us today, Sven and Dinya. Over to you, Sven. Thank you so much, Sanjay, for this generous introduction. I'm delighted to be here and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation, Professor Patel, about your recent book, which I had read in an earlier version and I just reread it yesterday. And I must say, it is a beautifully written and powerfully argued biography that touches upon many, many issues that are of relevance to understanding the history of South Asia and India in the 19th and 20th century. But I think it also touches upon issues that are quite important to the contemporary moment. So I'm very much looking forward to our conversation. And before we start that, I want to invite you to give us a short presentation on your work and on your recent book. Thank you. So first of all, I'd, I'd like to thank the South Asia Institute and of course, Professor Beckert for first of all, letting me have this talk. It's wonderful to give a talk to the Harvard community again. And again, thanks to everyone who's joined in today. I'll begin with a very short presentation, as, as I mentioned, just on the book and Dadabai Naroji and his particular life. So this is the book. It's now available in the United States, Europe and the United Kingdom. And in India, it's out in, at least in, in Mumbai. And I think it'll be out pretty much in the rest of the country by the 15th of July. Now, Naroji was someone whose life spanned 91 years. And out of those 91 years, he was politically active for a good five or six decades. And the central focus of his life was Indian poverty, discussing why India was so poor and what could be done in order to modify that poverty and, and make India self-sufficient. By the end of the, his life, as many of us know, his solution for Indian poverty was Swaraj, an idea of, of self-government. Nauruji himself came from quite a, a poor background. He grew up in relative poverty in colonial Bombay, but he benefited from public education. There was, there was a, an experiment at public education at the time in Bombay, and he rose through the ranks. And he really used education as kind of the focus of the rest of his life. I mean, he believed that he deserved to give back something to the general public for getting a free education. And so he began his career as a professor. So you know, one of the interesting things I found in the archives were 
actual uh, test papers that Naroji gave his students. He was a mathematics professor. So you can, you know, for those of you who are more mathematically inclined, you can take a look at some of his test questions he gave his students well over 150 years ago and see whether you can also crack the exams. But there were two formative experiences that explain why particularly, aside from his own personal upbringing, he became interested in poverty in India. And one was his association with the Indian economy. I mean, he was he was involved in the Indian cotton trade, both in Bombay and in London. And when he was involved in the cotton trade, the American Civil War took place. And this, of course, affected the Indian economy tremendously. First, India experienced a cotton boom when supplies from the American South were cut off. So this was a moment where he really personally understood how India was connected to the global political economy. And on the heels of that moment, you have terrible famine setting in into parts of India. And by, by 1867, famine had stalked a part of eastern India, Orissa, and as many as one in three residents of Orissa, one million people at this point in time, died of famine very quickly. And these twin moments really started to convince Naroji that something was fundamentally wrong with the economy in, in India. And this began about 15 to 20 years of real detailed economic work, where Naruji took apart economic data that existed in India, added his own inputs, critiqued and revised data, and came up with evidence that India was perpetually on the verge of starvation. I mean, the reason why famine set in so quickly in 19th century India was because India was so poor that the average peasant was always living at the very verge of starvation. So when you know something bad happened, like lack of rainfall or other climatic conditions, you could explain famine very quickly. So this was a, a very unpopular view that Naroji was articulating at this point in time, but it was one that had great significance in terms of the development of anti-colonial thought, not just in India, but around the world. I mean, you see reverberations of his thought in the works of people like Kwame Nkrumah, others who fought against colonial rule in places like Trinidad, even people like Sukarno in Indonesia would cite concepts like the drain theory. And this also provided a, an important bridge for Naroji's political work. Beginning in the 1870s and 1880s, Naroji begins to think of standing for the British Parliament in order to influence politics in Great Britain, specifically in favor of reform in India that will help India become less of a poor place. So from the 1880s onwards, you see Naroji give dozens, if not hundreds of lectures around the country on the topic of poverty in India. And his focus was to try to convince the average Briton to be more sympathetic towards Indian political reform and eventually to elect him as a, as a representative in parliament. As you can imagine, he faced a great degree of opposition, a great degree of racist opposition towards an Indian standing for parliament, so much so that the prime minister of, of the time, Lord Salisbury, actually called him a black man, undeserving of election to the British parliament. And this in turn made Naroji kind of a a cultural product of his time. I mean, you, you see on, on the slide a, a cartoon from the magazine Punch, where Naroji is, is parodied as Othello and uh, Lord Salisbury is the Doge of Westminster. So he really becomes kind of a cultural figure in many ways because of the identity of his, of his race and nevertheless wins. This so-called black man incident where he is called out by the prime minister actually stirs a lot of public sympathy towards him. And Naroji is elected to the House of Commons in 1892 as the first real Indian to be a member of parliament. And here you have a cartoon done where Naroji is standing as a colossus with one foot in India and one foot in England. He was only in parliament for about three years. And these were not very fruitful years in parliament. I mean, he spoke out quite forcefully at times against British rule, but not everyone was listening. Ultimately, he lost election in 1895 and he became 
terribly disillusioned at the prospects of gaining political reform in England through constitutional methods and particularly through lobbying the British public. But instead of kind of shrink or adopt more revolutionary politics and you know, for, forsake constitutional methods, he, he kind of accelerated them. And he reached out beyond the British public to many other components of society that were interested in Indian affairs and anti-colonialism in general. He reached out to socialists and he reached out as well to anti-colonialists in the United States through intermediaries. His ideas were transmitted to people like William Jennings Bryan, other anti-colonial figures. And at the very end of his life, he came up with this idea that only Swaraj or Indian self-government would be the way to alleviate Indian poverty, would be the only way to get rid of the drain of wealth. And so you see Naroji dressed as a Hindu sadhu under the flag of self-government. So Naroji was really identified with the idea of Swaraj at this time. Nowadays, we think of figures such as Bal Gangadhar Tilak, or of course, people like Gandhi, when we think of the idea of Swaraj. But the first person really popularly associated with this idea and the goal of Swaraj as being associated with the Indian National Congress was, was in fact, Naroji. So with that, I'll end my uh, presentation and we can move on to, to questions and, and answers. Thank you so much, Professor Patel. What even that short presentation shows is that Naroji was a key figure in Indian politics in the 19th and early 20th century. He was also a key figure in the more global thinking about colonialism from the global south. He was also a key figure in thinking about the effects of capitalism on the development of a global capitalist economy on the global south. So why is it that historians haven't written more about him earlier? For me, at least, that was a fortunate circumstance because I, you know, it, it was it was easy to write about him because very few people had written about him before. But I think there are a few reasons. I mean, at least in India, he, as well as his entire generation, has been overshadowed by individuals from Gandhi and Nehru's generations for obvious reasons. I mean, people like Gandhi and Nehru took the ideas that people like Naroji developed and, and advanced them much further, right? It was only with people of Gandhi's generation that you start to talk about this idea of Purn Swaraj or full Swaraj. Naroji still was conceiving of the possibility of a self-governing India being within the bounds of, of the British Empire. And it took a long time for even people like Gandhi to break with that notion. So there's a certain factor of generational eclipse over there. And then there's the idea, I think, of probably parallel paths in terms of economic pot. I mean, a lot of the ideas that Naroji was thinking about in the 1860s and 1870s in London were being thought about by other figures as well, right? I mean, most, most notably Marx. We have no evidence that Naroji and Marx ever met one another, but Marx most likely got whiff of Naroji's idea of a drain of wealth through a common friend, Henry Hinman, who was the founder of the, the first socialist party in Great Britain and really the first person to really popularize Marx's ideas in, in Britain and the English language. So if that actual physical meeting were to have taken place, we might know more about Naroji just through the vehicle of Marx. And Marx certainly talked a little bit of the idea of the drain of wealth later on as time went by. But the last factor, which I'll explain as possibility for why Naroji is less known is his published works and what he was saying in his letters were oftentimes quite different. I mean, in his published works, he oftentimes took quite a moderate line. And if you read his actual letters, they show a figure that was much more radical. I mean, I, I don't want to talk about Naroji as being radical in the same breath as Indian revolutionaries at the time. He certainly was not. But it definitely shows a man who was much more advanced than he's been given credit for. And I think that's one reason why a lot of people have tended to discount him, because they, don't, they, they always think of Naroji as being quite a, a moderate or, or loyalist political figure, when in actuality, he was much more than that. Right. So how come you rediscovered him? How come you decided to write a biography of him? 
I think a common factor in South Asian historiography has been kind of a reluctance to delve into both biography and to a, a lot of these kind of elite political figures from the late 19th and early 20th centuries, people who came from backgrounds that were oftentimes quite anglicized. So there's been a definite gap. And people like Ramchandra Guha have, have talked about this gap and, and have identified the fact that comparison to other societies, India has really lacked a really strong biographical tradition. It, it presented itself as an opportunity. What was the most surprising finding in your work? You know, again, the, Naroji has been categorized as, as someone who was a moderate in Indian historiography. And the one thing that really struck me was that actually, towards the end of his life, he really was kind of caught in, in the middle between both a radical stream of thought and a moderate stream of thought. So a lot of moderate politicians in India viewed him as being a radical, whereas a lot of radical politicians viewed him as being a moderate. And really, the, the figure who was quite in the middle over here was Bal Gangadhar Tilak, the, the, the acknowledged leader of, of the radical camp at this point in time. Tilak was the favorite of the radicals, and he was someone who was promoted as being someone who would be the, the, the president of the Congress in the 1906 session. But he himself bows out of the running of the 1906 Calcutta Congress in favor of Naroji. In 1906, after Dadabai Naroji gives the speech where he declares that Swaraj was the goal of the Congress, Tilak actually takes this as, as quite an inspirational message that he can give to the radical camp. And eventually, even people like Bipan Chandrapal, who was a critic of Naroji and, and, and someone who very forcefully spoke on behalf of the radical cause, is won over by Naroji's call for Swaraj and says, you know, this is, this is what we need to actually work towards. Right. For a long time, Naroji seemed to think that the future of India is to remain part of the British Empire, to take a different position within that empire, but to remain part of that empire. Was that a tactical move of his, or did he genuinely believe that there is a future for India within the British Empire? I think it was a little of both. For the vast majority of his life, Naroji maintained his faith in something that he called British justice. He, he thought that this sense of justice the British people had, and eventually they would come to the conclusion that providing India with political rights was the sensible and right thing to do. Towards the end of the, his life, he starts to lose some of this sentiment. But it's, it's very hard for him to get over this. I mean, this is something that he was reared in from the very beginning of his, of his education uh, in Bombay, in, in British-run schools. But the significant thing of his last speech that he gives at the Calcutta Congress is that he says India should achieve something like Swaraj as exists either in British colonies like Canada or Australia, where there was self-government within the British Empire, or yeah. Swaraj as the form of self-government as exists in Great Britain. So in that case, you're talking about India as being an autonomous nation, potentially outside of any sort of imperial framework. So I think at the very end of his political career, he was starting to think outside of the boundaries of the empire itself. Right. And his critique of British colonialism is obviously to a large extent political, but it's also, as you pointed out in your introduction, it's also very much economic. Right? He develops this idea that, that, that Britain is draining resources from the Indian subcontinent. Well, how did he develop these ideas? Where did they come from? What other strains of thought did he connect to? So I think the two important strains of thought to, to think about here is economic thought that was going on within India itself amongst Indian intellectuals and economic thought going on amongst anti-colonial figures in Great okay. Britain, or people who were, who were critical of empire in Great Britain. So within India, there definitely was a much longer tradition of understanding something like a drain 
as well. So, I mean, Naroji himself notes that when he was in school in Bombay in the 1840s, there were a group of Maharashtrian students who were just a little older than him who were talking about a drain of wealth and poverty, but not talking in terms of sophisticated economic theory, but just talking about the facts of what were around them. I mean, there, there was common memory of more prosperous times and a general understanding that under British rule, things had become much worse for the average Indian. So there was that indigenous tradition in India of understanding that poverty had set in, specifically with the collapse of the cotton textile industry. And this was coupled again with the, the thought that Naroji encountered both amongst British people who worked in India, as well as British people in Great Britain who were campaigning against parts of imperial policy. So when Naroji goes to Great Britain and moves there in the 1850s and, and 1860s, he meets a lot of people who are very critical of imperial policies, and he works with them. Although a lot of people who are involved in uh, British movements like abolition or the anti-corn law leagues, and these people were also dealing with ideas of what British rule should be like in India, specifically what was the relationship of British rulers vis-a-vis -vis Indian rulers, such as the princes. And there was a general understanding, again, that British rule was despotic and it was based entirely upon trying to maximize wealth to be taken out of the country. So Naroji's significance in this regard was melding together these two traditions. Right. And how impactful was that set of ideas beyond India? First and foremost, very significant in the dissemination of anti-colonial thought in Great Britain. You know, really within the sphere of Naroji's orbit in London, where he spent a good chunk of five decades of his life, he was talking with people in later generations of Indian nationalism, like people like Ramesh Chandra Dutt, who wrote a multi-volume economic history of India. He was familiar with socialist figures who were very critical of empire, people like Henry Hinman. And through people like Hinman, he branched out to other socialist figures in Europe and America. So one of the most interesting figures that I encountered in this paper, about whom we know very little, was a man called George Freeman. And George Freeman was a, an Irishman who left Ireland and Great Britain in the 1880s and 1890s and settled in North America. He eventually settled in New York. And he was very pro-Irish independence, but also at the same time, interested in what the British Empire was doing to other parts of the colonized world. And for that reason, he facets upon India. And Naroji and, and him engaged in about five or six years of correspondence. They never met one another in person, but they corresponded for a long period of time where they exchanged ideas about what colonialism meant in India and Canada or other parts of the world that were going under colonial rule, such as the Philippines or Puerto Rico or Cuba in, in the American imperial sphere. And they came up with a lot of ideas that were very similar to kind of Marxist, uh, proto-Marxist thought, the idea of capitalism being built upon racial and colonial differences. So they anticipated a lot of these ideas that Marx had already come up with, but which they weren't familiar with chapter and verse in, in terms of Marx's political writings. Right. So, so you would say that Naroji becomes part of a much larger conversation that comes out of the colonial world about the distributional effects of colonialism, but also of the development of capitalism and the importance of this kind of connected diversity that increasingly made up global capitalism. Correct, yeah. And in the Indian context, it's, it's especially significant because there's been a long kind of wariness of capitalism in India, right? Leading up all the way through liberalization in, in 1991, 1992. And a lot of that wariness of capitalism is, is rooted in 
this economic work from Naroji's generation, which pointed out that, well, ultimately, capitalism was the operating principle of, upon which Indian impoverishment was, was based upon. That is very interesting, and a lot more can be said about that, but I wanted to quickly move on to, to a related but different issue, and that is, obviously, there are increasingly economic inequalities, and there is, in Naroji's thought, this idea of the drain of wealth from India into, into Europe, but this is also a moment in which Europeans increasingly develop ideas of scientific racism, in which they argue that they're not just richer, but that they are also, in some fundamental way, different from people in other parts of the world. So I wanted to ask you, tell us a little bit how how Naroji navigated this increasingly harsh and pseudoscientific racism that comes about at exactly the moment that he's most politically active? That's a particularly relevant question because in India there's been lots of debate after Black Lives Matter about Gandhi in particular. Was, was Gandhi a racist? And someone like Naroji was similar to an early Gandhi in the sense that he had a general feeling of a certain brotherhood amongst humanity, a general feeling that color was not necessarily an important factor, but nevertheless, there was some gradation. So, I mean, unfortunately, he did at points in time subscribe to a common view amongst Indian nationalists of, this, of the time that Indians were more civilizationally developed than, say, Africans, and therefore they deserved more rights from the British than, say, Africans living in, say, the colonies of South Africa or, or East Africa. So that element of, of thought was there. But again, as time moves on, like Gandhi, he becomes much more progressive. By the end of his life, he's reaching out to black activists from the West Indies, as well as communicating with African-Americans who are coming over to Great Britain in order to talk about lynching in the American South. I mean, there was a, there was a journalist called Ida Wells, who was one of the founders of the NAACP. She was born into slavery. And when she came to Great Britain in 1894, 1895, Naroji was one of the people who she met with and talked to, and Naroji helped establish an, an anti-lynching organization in Great Britain to protest against lynching in the American South. So, I, I mean, he was moving along the spectrum where he was leaving behind his own possible moorings in scientific racism and embracing more of kind of an egalitarian humanitarianism. Can you say a few more words about Naroji engaging British racism against Indians? Perhaps the best example took place when the Prime Minister of Great Britain called him a black man undeserving of the vote. And what Naroji tried to do was, you know, say color is not the important bar over here. It's not the important factor upon which to work. And in fact, an Indian could be as qualified for holding a political office or subscribing to particular credentials as Britain. And, you know, to their credit, a lot of British people denounce Salisbury. So, you know, kind of like now, where you have political leaders who go a step further than what is publicly acceptable and promote a backlash. In many ways, Salisbury did the same thing in the 1890s. He got enough British people ashamed about racism and got them to introspect. And that, I think, helped not just Indian nationalism, but in general, anti-colonialism. I mean, one of the most, I think, moving parts in your book, I think his ability to reach out to Irish nationalists and also his connection to the British working class. And in some ways, I think there Naroji is, is superbly relevant to the contemporary moment, not just in, in India, but really globally. Because on the one hand, he fits the contemporary moment in that he is budding nationalist. You know, he eventually wants to build an Indian nation, but he's also cosmopolitan, right? He, he sees there are lots of commonalities between the Irish struggle 
and the Indian struggle, between the South African struggle and the Indian struggle. So I wanted you, in conclusion, before we open it up to the many, many questions that we already have, I just wanted you to speak for a minute or two on, you know, can we see him as a kind of cosmopolitan nationalist? And is that a model that is somehow relevant for the contemporary moment? Absolutely. And, you know, one, one of the ideas that really came to me as I was writing this book, and, and I'm going to explore it a bit more in my second book, is Indian nationalism had very cosmopolitan moorings. I mean, yeah. just from the fact that it grew up both in India and Great Britain, it already was exposed to an international environment. And through the British connection, India automatically grew very interested in what the experiences were like of other colonized people living under the British flag. So people like Naroji very naturally gravitated to the, towards the Irish because they saw the Irish as being similarly ground down by poverty under British rule. They saw the Irish fighting for their political rights. Many Indians thought the Irish were too radical. People like Naroji tended to disagree. But for this reason, there was kind of a feeling of brotherhood amongst other people who were fighting emancipatory political struggles. And, and this is really the reason why people like Naroji, but also later figures, people like... But that uh, that uh, included the British working class, right? That included labor in Britain. Exactly, exactly. So, I mean, that's why, you know, people like Naroji and, and, and others like D.K. DK Krishnamenon aligned themselves with the British working class. They, they fought on behalf of uh, labor and union rights and also female suffrage. I mean, Naroji was one of the most vocal proponents of female suffrage in, in the 1880s and 1890s in Great Britain. So you, you have an Indian being identified by female suffragists as being the, one of the most vocal supporters, which is quite an incredible uh, circumstance at this moment. Can this cosmopolitan nationalism be a model for today? Is that relevant to today? Absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think it's particularly relevant in a place like India. I mean, there's a huge liberal political tradition here in India, which unfortunately has come under assault in the past few years. And I think as we try to discuss how we go forward, we need to unearth more of this liberal political tradition and discover how it really benefited in the formation of India being a, an independent democratic nation state. Because, you know, a lot of the aspects of India that we value and treasure the most really had their roots in this liberal nationalist generation from the 1880s onward. Right. So your book is not just an intervention in reinterpreting Indian history of the 19th century, reinterpreting the Indian freedom struggle, but it's also, in a way, an intervention into current debates. Right. To, to, to a degree. And the next book that I'm going to be writing is much more on kind of this, this phase of liberal nationalism that, and will be a direct intervention, talking about how Indians came up with their own ideas of, say, freedom of the press, representative government, the ideas of judicial reform, police reform. And these are all really relevant questions in the modern day, as, as many of these freedoms and these ideas come under attack. Okay, that is wonderful. How do we interpret terms like nationalism and Swaraj in today's India, where some of these terms are being misappropriated to imply a certain extremism? What did nationalism mean to Naroji versus what it has come to imply now in popular culture? So this actually directly relates to the discussion we just had. That's a great question. Yeah. I mean, there's always been this kind of duality of meaning of the word nationalism, but the way nationalism was understood by people like Naroji or even later on, right, by people like Gandhi and Nehru is it wasn't exclusive, right? I mean, the goal of building an independent or, you know, a self-governing nation, but with a sense of solidarity with 
other people who are also struggling for their own rights, which is the reason why, again, Indian nationalism always maintains a very international focus. I mean, in 1946, just right before Indian independence, Indian nationalists are talking about colonialism in, in Indonesia. And one of the first things the Indian government does once independence takes place is protest against continuing colonialism in places like Indonesia or Vietnam. So that's radically different from what you have today, right? Where you have a very exclusivist form of nationalism that's talking about only one particular definition of who an Indian can be. For Indian nationalists of the earlier period, anyone could really be a nationalist as long as you believed in the ideas of self-governance, which is why Indian nationalism embraced so many non-Indians. I mean, the founder of the Congress was himself a Scotsman, Alan Octavian Hume. Some of the most important nationalist leaders were people like an Irish woman, Annie Besant, or Americans or Britons who came over to India and tried to help out. People like Charlie Andrews, who was one of Gandhi's great friends. So Indian nationalism always had a very international and worldly mooring. That's very different from the type of nationalism that's being talked about today, not just in India, but, you know, as we know, in America or Brazil or, or other places around the world. No, I mean, this is really a global moment, right? And, and, and as you say, India is not that different in that way from, from other parts of the world. And maybe that is one of the reasons that makes your book so incredibly relevant to the, to the contemporary moment as well. The next question is a more technical one for the historians among us. Namely, the question is, could you expand upon the archival materials that you consulted for the book, such as the National Archives of India? Right. So, Naruji is unique in the sense that a good chunk of his papers survive. And in India, a lot of our most important political figures, unfortunately, don't have much which a historian can work with. I mean, a, a lot of personal papers have been lost over the years. Now, Roji's collection is around 30,000 documents in size. So it's, it's, it's quite large. It's not in terribly good condition. And that's not entirely the, the fault of the National Archives of India, because those papers suffered a lot of wear and tear before they were deposited there. But, but it is difficult to work with. And this is a problem that every historian of India has to face dealing with material that's oftentimes very damaged or not very well catalogued or incomplete. So one of the challenges of archival research for Naruji was that a lot of the letters that he himself wrote either are damaged or no longer exist. So I had to kind of reconstruct Naruji's life with the letters that he mostly received, which is difficult, right? You have to use other people's letters to kind of reconstruct what Naruji was saying to them, since those letters by and large, don't exist anymore. But that situation is fantastic in comparison to what the situation is like for other people. You know, to give you an example, a very important nationalist from Naroji's generation was a, a Bengali called Surendranath Banerjee. None of his papers seem to survive. So we really have nothing with which to work on him aside from his publications and random letters that are in the collections of other people that do survive. Right, right. How long did it take you to do this research? Quite a long time. I mean, it took me about two years to go through about half of the collection. And right. then I spent a few more months in places like Great Britain or Ireland or other libraries across India looking for other supplementary material. So all in all, it took about two and a half years to, to do the research. So another question is uh, very different. Can you address the influence of Neroji on Gandhi? Sure. So Gandhi's primary mentor from this period of time was Gopal Krishna Gokhale, who was a, another early nationalist leader who was in turn influenced by M.G. Ranade, who was Naroji's contemporary. But 
Naruji also was a mentor-like figure, not, not to the same degree as Gokale, but he definitely played a role. And the most important role that Naruji played in Gandhi's career was taking Gandhi's early political work in South Africa and broadcasting it to an audience in Great Britain. Because when Gandhi starts out his political work in South Africa around, you know, 1892, 1893, uh, 1894, very few people are listening, right? I mean, he's a a young, relatively inexperienced lawyer. So he reaches out to Naroji, and there's a chance the two might have met one another uh, when Gandhi was studying in Great Britain in, in the late 1880s and early 1890s. We don't know for sure. But... Gandhi knew that Naroji was identified as as the leader of nationalist politics at this time. So he wrote to Naroji and he said, can you give me advice on what to do? And what Naroji did for the next several years is that whatever letters that Gandhi sent to Naroji, Naroji in turn forwarded them to imperial officials working at, say, the colonial office or members of parliament or even members of the government when the Liberal Party was there, uh, was in power at the time and said, you guys need to do something about this because, you know, Indians are being discriminated against in a British colonial colony. So he was one of the first people to kind of put pressure on the imperial government to do something to remedy racist policies in South Africa. Right. So you would say Naroji was an important influence on Gandhi? Yes. In, in, in terms of ideas also, for the, for the first two decades of, of Gandhi's life, Gandhi embraces these similar ideas of kind of constitutional nationalism, gradual political development through specifically legal and constitutional means. He only starts breaking with these ideas around 1908, 1909, where he, you know, he, he, he goes to prison. Um, so these ideas really influenced Gandhi's early political thought, and he acknowledges that them even later on, once Gandhi had moved into a territory where he's willing to confront British rule with non-constitutional means. Okay, the next question is rather critical, so be prepared. And the question is if you could explain your approach towards the writing of history or placing Naroji within a broader historical context. Does this book signal a return to great men of history, narrative styles, and historical methods? No, that's a great question, and that's an extremely valid criticism. What I've I've tried to do in this book is not just write about Naroji himself, but the people around him. Um, And these people weren't just other nationalists. Oftentimes, they were, say, Indian students in Great Britain, the particular individuals who are helping him collect economic data, So in that case, people who are working on farms or people he encountered in tours on on the countryside in India or people he was communicating to around the world, whether they were members of the Indian diaspora or other people involved in anti-colonial struggle. So I agree entirely that the great man theory is is very problematic. But there were certain people, you know, I think who nevertheless deserve study because their ideas were significant and, and they influenced certain historical breaks. But I think the best way to go about that is, again, not just focus on the man or the woman himself or herself, but to talk about the wider circle and network of people which they worked with. Because, you know, again, Naroji did not work in a vacuum. His ideas were influenced by a large segment of society, and he in turn influenced a forthcoming generation of nationalist leaders in their own thought and political perspectives. Right. And to be fair, I mean, in your book, you don't just talk about Naroji, but I remember you were writing about these moments when he returns from England to, to Bombay and he's greeted by tens of thousands of people in the streets. So you do situate him in Indian society more broadly, right? Right, right. 
Okay, the next question is about capitalism again. And that uh, the question here is, how would you place Naroji's thoughts vis-a-vis -vis capitalism? Was he an anti-capitalist or was he a proponent of independent capitalist development? Again, his, his views evolved quite a bit over time. In the 1860s, when he begins his first economic work, he's in favor of more British capitalist investment in India. He thinks that that's the best way to get India to be richer, to bring capital that doesn't really exist in India from Great Britain and invest in India. And that would be how India would, would get to be a richer country through investments in infrastructure and such. Within 10 or 20 years, he completely abandons these, these ideas because he realizes that any capital invested from Great Britain would oftentimes be siphoned out of the country through exorbitant interest rates and any profits would cycle back to, you know, to, to those very same British investors. So by the end of his life, he himself is saying there's something fundamentally wrong with capitalism itself. You know, he took the idea of free trade and he, like other individuals like Ranaday said, this is not exactly free trade. I mean, free trade itself is not free. It's based on certain preferences that were given to British importers and exporters and certain penalties that were given to Indians who are either supplying raw materials or who were the buyers. So by the end of his political career, he really is evolving as a socialist leader. You know, he's talking about um, state support for development, but that required things like tariffs. It required protection. It required a great deal of state investment in order for it to be viable. Right. And let's move on now to Hassan, who is asking, the extremists overshadowed the moderates or early nationalists. Is it what shapes our current political discourse too? The period 1920 to 1930, Rome, Berlin, Tokyo, and world history is often taken into consideration with respect to certain narratives of nationalism. Yes, I mean, early nationalism is definitely overshadowed. And you're right, at least amongst academic scholarship, there's a lot of scholarship on the radicals, right? The, the people who came after the moderates and who are also challenging Gandhi. So you're right, there is a great degree of overshadowing. But what I think is very important to keep in mind is that all of these groups, whether you're a moderate or a radical or, or a Gandhian, they were not again, operating in isolation. They were all talking to one another. And oftentimes people moved between camps. So to give you an example, someone like Lala Lajpat Rai or Madan Malviya, these were individuals who moved between moderate and extremist camps and eventually Gandhian camps. They played a role in, in each of these camps and they brought ideas to each of these particular streams. Radicals and moderates were working together and talking to each other for a good chunk of time in the very early 1900s. I mean, otherwise the Congress would have completely imploded. I mean, it, it came very close to imploding in 1907, but there is resolution by, you know, 1910 and 1915. So one of the problems with this whole process of overshadowing is, is the very issues of categorizations themselves. These categories overlapped with each other to a, a much larger degree than we believe nowadays. Right. And this actually relates directly to the next question, which unfortunately also will have to be the last question we can discuss here. The question is, could you expand on the relations of Naroji with the later stalwarts like Gokhale, Renand, and Tilak? So Gandhi was very much 
kind of a, a mentor-like figure to people like uh, Gokhale. Gokhale was a young member of the Congress in the early 1890s, and Naroji, along with, with Ranade, take him under his wing. And whenever Gokhale came to the United Kingdom in order to give evidence or campaign along with Naroji for Indian political rights, Naroji would, would work very closely with Gokhale. And the one thing that Naroji tried to do was make Gokhale more radical, especially on the issue of self-government. Gokhale was the president of the Congress in 1905, one year before Naroji was president at the Calcutta Congress. And Gokhale kind of tiptoes around the issue of self-government for India. He doesn't really say specifically that India should 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 get self-government and this should be the goal of the Congress. Naruji really tries to make Gokhale a vocal proponent of this idea, so much so that in 1906, when Naruji is too old to give his final presidential speech to the Congress, he makes Gokhale read it. So he literally puts his words in Gokhale's mouth about self-government. Tilak, again, was someone who regarded Naroji as political senior. He obviously disagreed to a great degree on Naroji's ideas, but there was a, a definite sense of respect between the two men. I mean, if you look at the few letters that exist between the two men, it's couched in a great degree of respect. There's, there's no antagonism there. And Tilak even referred to Naroji as being his, uh, his nationalist guru. Thank you so much, Professor Patel. Unfortunately, we will have to come to an end now. Thank you so much to the audience for being here with us. Uh, this was a terrific discussion and obviously much more could be said about these topics. I think the book which uh, I have here and which I very much recommend you all go out and purchase is important because it does throw a different light on the history of Indian nationalism. It does throw light into early debates on the global history of capitalism. But I think the book is also particularly relevant to the contemporary moment. And I think there are some lessons in that book about how to navigate the global economy and also global politics and the question of nationalism in today's world. So I very much recommend you read this book, but I also recommend you to read this book because it's just beautifully written and it's a joy to read. Uh, so thank you so much, Professor Patel. Thank you so much to all of you for being present. And I hope you're going to be able to join the next meeting of the Mitan Institute. Goodbye.